This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 94th episode of the program. Today is Thursday, May 11th, and I'm doing the show one day early because there is so much news that um, I don't want to wait any longer to talk about it. So we're going to get to the news. But before we do that, I want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank all of these individuals that decided to support us on PayPal and Patreon. And towards the end of the show, I will be thanking each and every single one of them because they are supporting independent media at a time where that is crucial. So when it comes to the news, coming up, Republicans are facing backlash from constituents at town halls. Betsy DeVos was booed at a commencement ceremony, and the FCC was inundated with comments about their proposal to gut net neutrality. Also, Sean Spicer decided to hide in the bushes. Now, additionally, we'll talk about Trump's decision to fire James Comey, Bill Maher's rich splaining segment, student loan debt, legal marijuana in Vermont, the Dakota Access Pipeline, and I'll also talk about celebrities who plan to enter politics in 2018 and 2020. I'll also give you more details on the DNC lawyer's argument regarding the DNC fraud lawsuit. And also on this episode, Senator Chris Murphy tap dances around a question when asked about Medicare for All, and Bernie Sanders was laughed at by journalists for the dumbest reason ever. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Uh, I don't have an interview, unfortunately, uh, but let's go ahead and jump right in because these are topics that I'm already late to, uh, and we've got to talk about them. So let's start with James Comey, and then we'll dive into the rest of it. Unless you're living under a rock, you've probably heard about how President Trump has fired FBI Director James Comey. Now, the reason why I say everyone and their dog has heard about this story is because the mainstream media has been covering it non-stop. Now, there's a lot of confusion around the story and the details, you know, everything is so convoluted that I don't know how to characterize this as anything other than a complete clusterfuck. And for people who are genuinely confused, you're not alone. Because when it comes to how we should feel or how people think we should feel about this story, well, nobody knows because both parties have been on opposite sides and then flipped multiple times when it comes to James Comey. And I think the perfect example of this is how Stephen Colbert actually announced on his show that James Comey was fired and then the crowd cheered. And then he basically had to say, you know, know what we should probably calm down and basically uh implied that they shouldn't be excited about this so nobody really knows what's going on and there's a lot of people within the mainstream media that has come to conclusions about this but anyone who is claiming to have the answers they don't everything all talks about this you know it's just speculative at this point because we don't know so my goal is to kind of break down for you how both parties viewed James Comey and how they flipped on multiple occasions and figure out what exactly might be going on because, again, we don't have the answers and that's okay. We don't have to come to a decisive opinion. We can just acknowledge that, you know, the details are messy and we could wrestle with it later. But for now, I think it's important that we get the information out there and if 
You don't come away from this segment hating both Republicans and Democrats even more than I don't think I did my job explaining this adequately because this has just been such a mess. Now, the biggest question is why would Donald Trump choose to fire James Comey of all times. Now, there's a story relating to this one that prior to James Comey's firing, just a couple days prior actually, Comey had asked for more funds to investigate Donald Trump's potential ties with Russia. And then all of a sudden, Donald Trump decided to fire him. Donald Trump, I mean, if he fired James Comey because he was being investigated by James Comey, well, that's just an abuse of power. So when it comes to Donald Trump firing James Comey, is this a problem? Well, potentially, because obviously, if you are a government official and you fire someone who's investigating you, regardless of how frivolous you feel that investigation is, that's an abuse of power. I mean, you can't really cut it any other way. It's suspicious. It makes you look guilty. Problem is that it's difficult to determine whether or not Donald Trump actually knew that James Comey was investigating him because in his letter, he reiterated that James Comey wasn't investigating him. But James Comey was, in fact, investigating Donald Trump for potential collusion with Russia. Now, look, I've been someone who... I'm not on board with the Trump-Russia collusion story, one, because we have yet to see any concrete evidence that Donald Trump has colluded with Russia. And furthermore, if we can find evidence that Donald Trump did work with the Russians to release John Podesta and the DNC's emails to WikiLeaks, I don't think that that's tantamount to trying to rig an election. I mean, what they did was release information exposing how Hillary Clinton rigged the election. So unless you can find evidence that Donald Trump worked with Russians to hack voting booths or something, I just don't see how that's a persuasive argument. But regardless, even if I'm not on board with the Russia collusion story and I don't find it persuasive and I don't see any evidence as of yet, you know, this seemed like an impulsive reaction. And rather than playing it cool, if you were being investigated, what's the one thing that you want to do? You want to make it seem as though, you know, this investigation will lead nowhere, right? But rather than doing that, Donald Trump decided to fire James Comey. And what he did was give Democrats this present right now. And he's giving them a huge opportunity to ramp up this Russian hysteria even more. And if you think that this is the smoking gun, it may not necessarily be the case that it has anything to do with Russia because Donald Trump, he's a corrupt businessman with ties to countries all around the world, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. So it may not be the case that they found evidence of, you know, uh, Trump-Russia collusion. Perhaps James Comey found evidence that Donald Trump uh, governed in a way that would benefit his businesses. And I've already talked about on the show how that is in fact the case. So while investigating Donald Trump, it could have been the case that James James Comey found something else. We have no way of knowing, but Donald Trump shouldn't have freaked out because we know that James Comey doesn't like to hold the elites and the powerful accountable because, you know, during his tenure as FBI director, the FBI has prosecuted people for doing less than what Hillary Clinton did, but yet he failed to indict her even though he admits that she mishandled classified information. So there's just so much details that makes this a really messy story, and it's difficult to come away with any concrete conclusions other than the fact that both sides are being opportunistic. Donald Trump 
he's just not playing his cards right. He's being incredibly dumb and he's fanning the flames of any Russia conspiracy that the Democrats are trying to put forward. And Democrats are being opportunistic because they're going to now use this as a distraction from the fact that they have nothing to offer voters. So let me just give you a recap as to how many times both parties have flipped. So first, Democrats disliked James Comey because he was investigating Hillary Clinton and Republicans loved him because he was investigated Hillary Clinton. Now, both sides changed their positions when James Comey announced that he would not be indicting Hillary Clinton. So at that point, Democrats praised him and thought that he conducted a fair uh, investigation. And then Republicans thought that he wasn't fair and that he was being partial towards Hillary Clinton. Now, objectively speaking, if you were angry at the fact that James Comey chose not to indict Hillary Clinton after he admitted that she was extremely careless in her handling of classified information, especially when you know that the FBI was hard and, uh, penalized people for doing the same thing that Hillary Clinton did, then I think you were right to be angry with James Comey. But the anger that Republicans felt towards James Comey was not justified because they didn't care about justice. They weren't outraged that James Comey basically demonstrated how we live in a two-tiered justice system where the poor get penalized when they commit crimes, but the elites get away with it. They were just outraged because they were partisan hacks, and they wanted James Comey to indict Hillary Clinton. But for those of us who are progressive, we were frustrated with James Comey because he showed that he is willing to allow elites to get away with doing the same things that poor people do that he has prosecuted them for, Navy officials. So, it was unjust what he did. Brian Nishimura, who did not intend to distribute classified information, was penalized under the leadership of James Comey at the FBI. However, the position of Democrats and Republicans changed once again when Comey released his letter in late October, which stated that he would be reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Now, at this point, Democrats hated him and called for him to resign, while Republicans loved him again. In fact, Hillary Clinton literally blamed him for her loss, but now, since Donald Trump fired him, both parties have flipped yet again, and now Democrats disagree with his firing while Republicans are in favor of it. So both sides have been completely inconsistent, and after watching all of this unfold, I'm not sympathetic to either side because both Republicans and Democrats have both exposed themselves as hypocrites and political opportunists, both of which have praised and lambasted Comey depending on whether or not it was politically expedient for them to do so at a particular period of time. And now both parties are acting very reprehensible. They're being partisan hacks when it comes to the firing of James Comey, because we have Donald Trump, who, again, it looks as though this is an abuse of power. If he did, in fact, know that James Comey was investigating him, but again, he's dumb, so we, we can't necessarily say that with certainty. Um, you know, if you fire someone who's investigating you, you, you just can't do that. Objectively speaking, you can't do that. We'd call out Democrats if they did that. We'd call out Republicans if, you know, they did something like that. And certainly, we need to call out Donald Trump if he did, in fact, do something like that. And, you know, he claims to have fired Comey upon the recommendation of the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General. But again, there's a huge question. Why would they only recommend that he do this now? So that's an open question and we don't have the answer to it. Now also, what Democrats are going to do with all of this and what we've already seen is that they're being opportunistic. They're using this to ramp up Russian hysteria and attack Donald Trump on this. And they kind of look at this as the smoking gun. And they say, it seems as though Comey was about to uncover evidence that Donald Trump colluded with Russia 
to tip the scales against Hillary Clinton. But again, if all you're going to bring me is evidence that Donald Trump colluded with Russia to release the WikiLeaks emails of John Podesta and the DNC, I don't think that is tantamount to election hacking because before the election, what were we told by the media? That there was nothing here. I mean, the, the Daily Beast literally said that WikiLeaks trolled the world by releasing nothing on Hillary Clinton. And once she lost, Democrats were desperate to try to pin blame on her loss on anything. So then they started to blame WikiLeaks when before the election they claimed it wasn't a problem. So unless you could bring me evidence, like I said, not to be redundant, that Donald Trump worked with Vladimir Putin and Russia to rig the actual elections or the election machines where you vote, I don't think you can make that case because we always spy on our allies. We always are interested in the affairs of elections. You can make the argument that President Obama's endorsement of uh, Macron in France was him trying to tip the scales against Le Pen. We always do this, so I don't find that persuasive. However, Donald Trump just handed Democrats a big gift because now they're going to use this as an opportunity to ramp up Russian hysteria, and it's just never going to end, and this distraction will continue. Meanwhile, actual important issues in the country will continue to be ignored, and I find that incredibly disheartening. So, I mean, in sum, our government is stacked with opportunistic idiots from top to bottom, and we shouldn't let this distract us from the real issues, but I'm not going to imply here that Comey is the victim because he's a coward. And, you know, the irony in all of this is that if he actually would have done his job and held Hillary Clinton to the same standard that he held other people to, who he prosecuted for doing what she did, then he would still have his job because if Hillary Clinton was indicted, or if he recommended to the Justice Department that she be indicted, then she would have been forced to drop out of the race, Bernie Sanders would have become the Democratic Party's nominee, and then he would have defeated Donald Trump, and James Comey would still have his job. So, you know, after seeing all of this unfold, both parties are just, they're egregious. They have no principles, and they're all opportunistic assholes who don't really care about us. And this distraction is going on while the real issues are continuing to get ignored. So again, we don't have all of the details. This is, you know, the, the waters are so muddied at this point that we can't really decipher what's actually going on. But what we do know is that it's convoluted. The story is complex. You don't have to take a side. Don't feel pressured to take a side or come to a conclusion that you know what's going on based on, you know, the <laughs> pontification in the mainstream media because they don't know what's going on. Everything uh, is all speculative. And at this point, the story is so unclear that anyone can take any narrative that they've been uh, championing and apply it to the story and it might look like it fits. So in the end, we don't know what's going on, but what we do know is that this is distracting us from the real issues. And nobody's innocent here. James Comey, Donald Trump, the Democrats, they all should be ashamed of themselves for the way that they handled this situation and currently are handling the situation. Here's what I'll end with. I think that since Donald Trump did, in fact, decide to fire James Comey while he was under investigation by him, now it is time for us to appoint an independent investigator to figure out what's going on because you can't you can't do that. We have to get to the bottom of this as to whether or not Donald Trump did in fact commit an abuse of power and I think it's you know it's perfectly reasonable to want an independent prosecutor to look into Donald Trump. Um so 
I'm always going to err on the side of more information and not less, but with that being said, I want my fellow liberals to not be so fixated on Russia. Broaden this out. Donald Trump, he has his hands in cookie jars across the world. So if you're thinking that Russia may be the only thing that, you know, James Comey finds, there's, again, Donald Trump has businesses in many countries. So it could be broader than that. But I think that there's one conclusion that we can all take away from this. You know, Donald Trump had nothing to worry about with Comey because Again, Comey showed that he is not willing to hold the rich and the elites accountable to the extent that he holds, you know, normal Americans accountable. So Donald Trump had nothing to worry about. The biggest thing that I want to emphasize is that we can't get caught up on this. There's an attack on net neutrality right now. There is a push for Medicare for all that the Democratic Party doesn't want to focus on. There's a lot that can bog us down, but I don't want that to happen. I want us to acknowledge what's happening, try to get to the bottom of it, and then get to the real issues. Last week, I talked about how House Republicans voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with the American Health Care Act, which would allow insurance companies to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, and it also guts Medicaid, and it ensures that the wealthy get a huge tax break. So once they passed this bill, they decided to celebrate and throw a beer bash. However, once they had to face their constituents and explained why they voted for this disastrous bill, I think some of them, maybe some of them, might have realized that this celebration came a little bit too soon. You are mandating people on Medicaid except dying. You are making a No, no one wants anybody to die. You know, that, that line is so indefensible. Nobody dies because they don't have access to healthcare. Nobody dies because they don't have access to healthcare. <laughs> so that was Representative Raul Labrador and what he said was so incredibly idiotic that a room full of his constituents laughed in his face. And that was the appropriate response because what else do you say to someone that says something so absurd that he's just not connected to reality. But the problem is that if you're being laughed at by your constituents, you'd think that reality would have hit him like a ton of bricks and that he would have come to the realization that he's just not in touch with his constituents and he should probably resign. Because if you are that detached from the struggle of everyday Americans, well, you're just incapable of representing them. Uh, you can't you can't represent them and your job is to represent your constituents. So if you can't do that then you should resign. But rather than resigning or thinking that he needs to, you know, think twice about how he represents his constituents, well, this jackass subsequently announced that he would be running for governor in Ohio. <laughs> Good luck with that, Raul, because that crowd that laughed at you was just a small sample size of what would happen, but on a larger scale on the state level if you did in fact decide to run for governor. And Raul here isn't the only Republican that's being laughed at by his constituents. If you got an issue getting Social Security, if you got an issue getting Medicare, if you got an issue anything to do with the federal government, stop in, tell us what it is. And I always tell folks, I can't guarantee you I can't guarantee you that we're going to get the result you want. I can guarantee you we will go fight for you. So whether you're a veteran, so whether...
it's like they're stand-up comedians at this point. I care for you guys. I'm fighting for you. That's why I voted for a bill that would strip away your health care and kill some of you. But you know what? I'm fighting for you. Ask me if you need something. I mean, it's, it's just a joke. Now, that was Representative Rod Bloom. And with friends like Rod Bloom, I mean, who needs enemies? Now, getting laughed at by his constituents was basically the cherry on top of the shit Sunday of a day he was having because earlier that day, before he attended this town hall, he had an interview with a local reporter that made him look like a hypocrite, and then he quickly shut off the interview because he just couldn't deal with it. So one thing that's a little less typical is you want to see IDs for this. Can I ask why that decision was made? Because we want people from the first district to be at our town halls. We don't want people from outside of the first district. We don't need people from Chicago there or Des Moines there or, or Minneapolis there. Um, I don't represent them. They should go talk to their representatives at their town hall meetings. I don't know why they would want to be at one of my town hall meetings to start with. Well, I think some would make the case that you represent all Iowans. The decisions that you make impact all Iowans. So shouldn't all Iowans have a voice at the table or at least have the option to? <laughs> I don't represent all Iowans. I represent my the first district of Iowa. That'd be, that'd be like saying, uh, shouldn't I be able to, even though I live in Dubuque, go vote in Iowa City during the election because I'd like to vote in that district instead. Would you still take donations from a Republican in Iowa City? I mean, <laughs> I'm, 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 we haven't even, we just started. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. We, 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 like he's going to sit here and just, just badger right, me. Right. Just we, 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 we just asked why you wanted to do the interview. That was, that was it. Congressman, you to come on. Take, take a seat. Congressman, I, I insist. Let's, let's talk about... Come on, Congressman. Let's, let's talk about the issues here. Unbelievable. So what you just saw was a bad person who did a bad thing, who wants absolutely no accountability. He wants, like all other Republicans, to be able to screw you over and get away with it. Don't even question him. Well, Rod, I hate to break it to you, but you don't just represent everyone in your state. You represent all of us, because let me remind you, you're in the United States Congress. So what you do, the way that you vote, affects all of us. So when you voted to gut Medicaid and give a tax cut to your wealthy donors, that affects all all of us, people from all different states, are now vulnerable and may lose their health insurance. So please, spare me. You, you know, the reason why you didn't want uh, people to attend your town halls and why you wanted IDs checked at the door was because you didn't want more people to criticize you than we're already going to because you knew there was going to be hell to pay for your vote. Now, at a town hall in Oregon, Representative Greg Walden, who is the lone Republican, uh, not for long because we will be voting him out, uh, well, what he did was he posed a question that... I don't know what he was expecting would be the answer, but his constituents were very vocal as to what type of healthcare system they supported. Uh, how many here want a single payer government run system? Yes. 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 Hell yeah. So he had to face his constituents in the liberal blue state of Oregon because he voted for a bill that would kill people and strip health insurance away from millions of Americans. And the question that he asked was prompted by someone who yelled out saying that she wants Medicare for all. So he asked the question, how many people are in favor? And then you saw the response. Now, after that, he quickly changed the subject because he didn't want to talk about Medicare for All because obviously his donors would not like him doing that. But that wasn't the end of it because... 
Tom Reed of New York was also castigated by his constituents at a town hall. Now, I don't know if this came from the same town hall, but there was another one of Tom Reed's constituents that asked him about his stance on health care, and she perfectly explained why a Medicare for all single-payer health care system is essential in the United States. And this was by far my favorite clip from a town hall throughout the week. So that town hall was amazing, and really, it's a snapshot of what's occurring in town halls across the country, because if Republicans think that they can gut health care and get away with it with no repercussions, they're completely wrong. We are in a political time where people are paying attention, people are motivated, and they're not going to allow you to screw them over and get away with it. So if you are going to vote for a bill that's disastrous, that only 17% of the American public supports, then you're going to have to explain yourself. This is what you did to us. In this district, you do not listen, but your actions affect the entire country. There is no one in this country that your actions are not going to affect. So everyone's voice is important. And when 17% of the population said, don't do it, you did it. This man is correct when he said that you brought it back from death. Ryan said it's dead. Trump said it's dead. And you said, nope, I got a better idea. Last time in Weartown, you told us 
that you went to Congress to fix problems, that you didn't want to decorate a chair, that you didn't want to choose between being an obstructionist and I want to get something done. That was the keenness of your intellect that you only had two choices in front of you. Don't be an obstructionist or make something better. Well, there was a horrible bill available to you from a horrible group of people who believe that we don't deserve health insurance. They have said it on TV, on camera. Well, then you're not paying attention. And that's your responsibility. They said it. They said that if we get sick, it's our fault. These are the people that are in your party, that you're working with. These are the people that came up with a plan that's going to kill millions of people. The CBO scored 24 million people off of health insurance. And they called that choice. Like we're choosing not to have health insurance if we can't afford it. That is insulting. That is detrimental to the mental health of us as a nation. But all of this, all of it, totally misses the point. Healthcare is not a good. You do not buy health insurance the same way you buy a car, the same way you buy a house. Those are already complicated things to do. You gotta know about cars, you gotta know about houses, at least a little bit, but there are reasonable ways to be educated on those things and make reasonable choices. I work in healthcare, sir. It is complicated. The only one that doesn't believe that it's complicated is an orange-haired buffoon sitting in the White House. And you're working with him to take something that he doesn't understand, that he won't be responsible for, because he's gonna be fine. You're working with him, you're working with Ryan, you're working with people that don't care about us. If you wanna make something better, you could have made the ACA better directly. You could have made sure that all the funding that you're saying that we need right now, just put it in there. Introduce a bill, show me what you're made of. Show me that you know what's going on, that you can actually do something instead of siding with people that clearly, by the virtue of their own words, do not care. They want their money back. That's their version of compassion. If you are one of the individuals that attended a town hall to call out your congressman or congresswoman for voting for this disastrous bill, thank you because you are part of the true resistance movement that will catalyze real progressive reform in America. It's time we move towards a Medicare for all system, and this vote is indefensible. So every single Republican in the House of Representatives that voted for the American Health Care Act, they need to be named, they need to be shamed, and most importantly, their asses need to be voted out of office come 2018 because that was indefensible. And Americans are quickly illustrating and sending a huge message to our elected officials that we're not going to take it anymore. At Bethune-Cookman University's commencement ceremony, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos was invited to be a guest speaker. Now, as you would have predicted, you know, seeing that she is the Secretary of Education and she bought her job, people didn't really care about what she had to say because she's a billionaire and she has nothing meaningful to say. So what happened during the, <laughs> the course of her speech was she was booed continuously. And not only that, students actually had their backs turned away in protest of her speech. Great honor and privilege. 
I am honored to become a Wildcat. And it's a real honor and privilege to be with you as we celebrate the Bethune-Cookman University Class of 2017. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you, and particularly with those who have disagreed with the invitation for me to be here. One of the hallmarks of higher education and of democracy is the ability to converse with and learn from those with whom we disagree. If this behavior continues, your degrees will be mailed to you. Choose, choose which way you want to go. Graduates to be, would you please be seated? Graduates, would you please be seated? I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be with you today. While we will undoubtedly disagree at times, I hope we can do so respectfully. Let's choose to hear one another out. I want to reaffirm this administration's commitment to and support for HBCUs and the students they serve. Please know this. We support you, and we will continue to support you. That is one reason, one reason why we support restoring year-round Pell Grants. Congratulations, and may God continue to bless our nation, Bethune-Cookman University, and each of you, the class of 2017. So that to me was just amazing. It made my day. It really did. Uh, and I honestly don't have much to say about this um, other than just, you know, me wanting to share it with you because that was just fantastic. And look, um, if anything, I will say this. I think that that kind of illustrates why liberals should allow conservatives to come out. Uh, to their universities and speak because, you know, if you don't like them, if you don't like what they have to say, at least you could boo the shit out of them. And I think that that will have a more profound impact than anything else because in this case, you know, uh, liberals didn't look like the bad guy. It was Betsy DeVos who was embarrassed because of this. But when you see, you know, uh, liberals at college campuses like UC Berkeley that 
prevent Milo, Yiannopoulos, and um, Ann Coulter from speaking. It just makes liberals look like the bad ones, and it makes it look like we are trying to shut down the First Amendment. And I hear you because it, it's not fair, because how often do liberal speakers get to attend Christian colleges? You know, or conservative colleges. Not very often, right? But we don't hear about that. So I get you. I get that there's hypocrisy there. But I think that if you really want to get your point across, this is the best way to do it. So take note from these students because what they did was fantastic. And look, I'll just say this to Betsy. Uh, looks like you bought the wrong job because if you think that young, impressionable people who are mostly liberal are going to fall for your idiotic theocratic education policies and how you want to push for charter schools, they are not buying what you're selling them. They're not picking up what you're putting down. They don't like you, Betsy. So it looks like, you know, you bought this job, so you're going to have to buy a different job, preferably one out of government where you don't influence public policy because, again, you're a billionaire. You're out of touch with the overwhelming majority of human beings, so you have nothing substantive or meaningful to say to us. So buy a job in the private sector, leave us alone, we don't want you having any influence over our education policy, and that right there, those students who protested you, who turned their backs to you, is a snapshot of how we all feel about you. Those students spoke for all of us. There's been a range of responses from Trump's administration when it comes to how they deal with the press. Now, overall, most people within Donald Trump's administration has been relatively combative towards the press. However, there are some individuals within his administration that are taking a very different approach. So when it comes to press secretary Sean Spicer, New York Daily News explains after news spread that President Donald Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, press secretary Sean Spicer went to great lengths to avoid the barrage of media questions he was bound to get. He reportedly took shelter behind bushes. Really? <laughs> oh, this is the state of American politics, everyone. We've got the White House press secretary <laughs> going to this going this far to hide from reporters. He's hiding in the bushes like a coward. Now let me just say this. First of all, the meme potential for this is so high. It's so high. So make me proud, Internet, and many of you have already made me proud. Even though this is hilarious just because it's pathetic and you can't help but cringe and feel embarrassed for Sean Spicer, I think that this really is, you know, it's a symptom of a broader issue that plagues Trump's administration just in general because they have contempt for the press and reporters and disregard members of the media. And I understand why someone would initially be sympathetic to that position because let's face it, our media sucks. They're corporatist. They are constantly doing the bidding of elites and the powerful and moneyed interests. But the problem is that an administration's response to the press is really important because without a free press, you don't have democracy. If an administration, if the executive branch is not willing to speak with the press, then that's a problem. You can't have transparency without the press, even though they suck. And the instances where the media actually did a good job at calling out Donald Trump, well, those are the times when Donald Trump 
and his administration has taken really draconian acts against the press. Now, Sean Spicer hiding from the press, even though it's funny, it is problematic because you, you're the press secretary. You shouldn't avoid reporters. However, this is probably the least objectionable thing that his administration has done with respect to the press because they're members of the press that have actually been arrested for questioning Donald Trump. So The Hill explains, in a press conference held shortly after posting bail, Dan Heyman, a reporter for Public News Service, said he asked Price, who is the health secretary, repeatedly about whether domestic violence is considered a pre-existing condition under the new GOP healthcare bill. It's a legitimate question. Now, according to Heyman's account, he waited for Price to come into the building and then reached past those accompanying Price with his phone and repeatedly asked his healthcare question adding that a number of other reporters wanted to bring up the issue of pre-existing conditions. He said Capitol Police at some point decided I was just too persistent in asking the question and trying to do my job, and so they arrested me. The event concluded with a press conference at the end of Price's visit, which Heyman reportedly could have attended but did not. According to the criminal complaint by the Capitol Police, Heyman was aggressively breaching the Secret Service agents to the point where the agents were forced to remove him a couple of times from the area, walking up the hallway in the main building of the Capitol. The defendant was causing a disturbance by yelling at Miss Conway and Secretary Price. So, in a democracy where the media is supposed to act as the fourth branch of government because it's supposed to be a check on the powerful, on the people who are in control of our government, this reporter was arrested for asking a legitimate question. So I think that his persistence in getting an answer was important. He was doing his job. And you have a lot of, you know, don't get me wrong, you have a lot of media hacks and partisan hacks in the media, but this is a journalist who was doing a good job. He was holding Donald Trump accountable. And he was arrested for doing so. Now, I know people will say, well, Mike, this is his own fault because he was being disruptive. Well, ask yourself this. What's the excuse that dictators use? when they arrest journalists. I mean, what would Erdogan say in Turkey? What would Sisi say in Egypt? They would use the same excuse. You know, they were being uh, disruptive. They were posing a threat to us. So we had to arrest them. This is not acceptable. Now, arresting journalists is one thing, but that's one portion of free speech that Trump's administration has tried to shut down because during the confirmation hearing of Jeff Sessions, there was an activist that was there that laughed at Jeff Session, that's something that he said, and she was arrested. Why am I being taken out of here? This man is evil. You're evil. Do not vote for Jeff Sessions. I was going to be quiet. Now you're going to have me arrested? For what? For what? He said something ridiculous. His voting record is evil. Why am I being arrested? So, in an op-ed for Vox, that activist explains what happened. On January 10th, I was arrested for laughing during the confirmation hearing of Attorney General nominee Jeff Sessions. And just this week, I was convicted of the two charges I received as a result of my arrest. One of disorderly and disruptive conduct and one of parading or demonstrating on Capitol grounds. Sentencing happens next month. I could spend up to a year in jail or be fined or both. 
just because I let out a chuckle at a public hearing. Later on in the same hearing, others were heard laughing during the proceedings when Jeff Sessions was asked if he ever had disagreements with his wife. One person even yelled out, you're under oath. Americans should be outraged that for two seconds of laughter during a public hearing, one could get jail time. What does this say about the state of free speech in our country? We should all be concerned that our freedoms are in jeopardy. Now, has Attorney General Jeff Sessions come out to denounce the arbitrary arrest of this activist? No, he hasn't. And Americans should be allowed to protest the confirmation of racist attorney generals because we're a democracy. Now, again, I want to come back to Sean Spicer because we've seen repeatedly how the Donald Trump administration treats journalists. Regardless if they're good or bad journalists, his administration holds them in contempt and disregards the service that they provide or should be providing to Americans or certainly inhibits the job that they are doing. So, I mean, even though it's funny that Sean Spicer is a coward and he's willing to hide from reporters, it still illustrates a symptom of a broader issue with the Trump administration. And that is, is there's an inherent lack of respect for the press. And again, I want to reiterate here that I can sympathize with that position because American media is terrible, as I've stated. But if you're truly on the right side of the issues, you don't try to shut them down or arrest them or hide from them. You face them and know that the American people will have your backs if you're truly on their side. But Trump doesn't have their backs. He's corrupt. And in a climate where the media tries to sensationalize any and everything about Trump or Russia or something stupid that Kellyanne Conway recently stated, well, they've been most harsh on members of the press that asked legitimate questions that weren't being sensationalistic. And they've penalized people who had legitimate grievances with Donald Trump's administration. So if you're a member of the press or you're from an organization that wants to protest Donald Trump, there's been a consistent effort on the behalf of his administration to stifle you. And that is not acceptable in a democracy. Now, um, when it comes to the media, I mean, he's taking the best journalists that we have, journalists that we have in the country, and he's treating them the worst. So we have partisan hacks that, you know, he thinks are the best because he, you know, he sees them as legitimate, hence why he responds to them all the time on Twitter. But yet real journalists who are asking him questions that matter, they're being arrested. Activists who are protesting the confirmation hearing of a racist attorney general are being arrested. And when Donald Trump does something abruptly that prompts questions, because we all have questions about why he fired James Comey, the White House press secretary hid in the bushes rather than face reporters. You know, it, it's problematic. Press freedom has, it's been eroded little by little with each administration. And Donald Trump is taking significant steps to erode it even further. And we have to make sure that we hold him accountable. Over the course of the last several months, I have been trying desperately to get people to pay attention to the FCC's attack on net neutrality. Because if they do, in fact, gut net neutrality, then the internet will be destroyed. I mean, this will, we're looking at a completely different type of internet, but I mean, I'm only one person. The Humanist Report is only so big, even though we have 100,000 subscribers, that's just not enough people to make a difference. So thankfully, uh, we recently got an ally in John Oliver who decided to cover net neutrality and the FCC's recent attack on net neutrality. Now, the great thing about this is 
uh, he, credit where credit is due, John Oliver did an excellent job covering net neutrality last time in 2015. So even though I've had my disagreements with John Oliver in the past, I think that what he's doing here is great. And I'm on his side 100% when it comes to this issue. So he did a new segment about how the FCC is trying to kill net neutrality. And the FCC, after this segment, was inundated with tons of calls, so much so that it actually crashed their website. Now, what's funny about this is, you know, uh, you would think that a government agency like the Federal Communications Commission would be excited at the prospect of people, you know, calling in because that's democracy. However, what the FCC painted this as was an attack. So since John Oliver galvanized a bunch of his viewers to call in and, uh, send their comments to the FCC, well, they decided to whine about this and say that we were attacking them. Network World explains, after John Oliver urged viewers of HBO's Last Week Tonight to fight for net neutrality again and post comments to the FCC's website, people were not able to submit comments because the site turned to molasses. The FCC blamed the problem on multiple DDoS attacks. These were deliberate attempts by external actors to bombard the FCC's comment system with a high amount of traffic to our commercial cloud host. These actors were not attempting to file complaints themselves, rather they made it difficult for legitimate commenters to access and file with the FCC. Now they argue a DDoS attack at the exact same time as Oliver's viewers would have been leaving comments? The last rally cry by Oliver resulted in such a flood of would-be commenters that had crashed the FCC comments site. So, it doesn't seem outside the realm of possibilities that his newest plea for every internet group to come together and tell the FCC to preserve net neutrality and Title II could also crash the site. That's something that I'd like to call democracy. However, if you're the FCC, you like to play the victim and call that an attack when that's not an attack. Now, furthermore, if this was in fact a DDoS attack and the FCC's website was targeted, this doesn't necessarily mean that the FCC was the victim. It would also mean that consumers of the internet are the victims because as you'll remember, it was the public that was prevented from commenting. So if there was a DDoS attack, how do we know that it didn't come from the FCC or an ally of the FCC so that way they can stop the public from sending comments on net neutrality? I mean, how do we know that? But I mean, that's not even the implication here. They're claiming that they were viciously attacked, basically, by by people who just flooded the website because they wanted to crash the website. They didn't have legitimate concerns about net neutrality. They just wanted to be bad actors and crash the FCC's website. But if that really is the case, they can easily prove it. So as Fight for the Future puts it, the FCC should immediately release its logs to an independent security analyst or major news outlet to verify exactly what happened last night. The public deserves to know, and the FCC has a responsibility to maintain a functioning website and ensure that every member of the public who wants to submit a comment about net neutrality has the ability to do so. Anything less is a subversion of our democracy. And look, let's put two and two together here. This isn't the first time that the FCC played the victim because FCC's chairman Ajit Pai recently reversed an expansion of the lifetime subsidy which was a subsidy that was important because it made the internet more affordable for certain low-income families that qualified for the subsidy. So after receiving backlash for screwing over poor people and making the internet less accessible to them, he penned an op-ed in Medium calling out the media's sensationalism over the story. No, that's that's not what this is about, Ajit. What you did was you did something bad and we didn't like it and we called you out for it. That's what happens if you try to screw over the public. So, I mean, look, if you put two and two together, 
This guy is trying to play the victim. He is a master in obfuscation of the truth. He lies like no one else. I mean, if you listen to him speak and you didn't know better, you would think that he's in favor of net neutrality because he refers to gutting net neutrality as keeping the internet free and open. That's literally the language and the rhetoric that he's using, but that's the complete opposite of what's actually happening. So I'm glad that we're finally paying attention because you all know I've tried really hard and, you know, this the story just wasn't gaining the steam that it needed to. But thankfully, with John Oliver's dedication, you know, of this issue to an entire segment, this helped. And so I would advise other liberal comedians like Samantha Bee, like Bill Maher, rather than berating Bernie Sanders supporters, if you do something like this, if you get on our side when it comes to the issues that we're fighting for, you can do a huge service to your country and help protect democracy in America because with the internet you know this isn't just about the internet the internet is crucial to democracy I mean we saw how without the internet I don't know how the Arab Spring would have been catalyzed so the internet is essential to a democracy in the age of technology and we've got to protect it so I'm glad that John Oliver did this. I, I feel much better now that more Americans are paying attention. And the fact that the website crashed, even, um, you know, it drew in more eyes to the story. So I think that this is a win-win for anyone who's fighting to maintain net neutrality. Millionaire Bill Maher, who works for Time Warner, Hillary Clinton's 10th largest donor, took the time to rich-splain liberalism to progressives because according to Bill Maher, if you're one of the people that didn't come out to support Hillary Clinton or who voted for Jill Stein, then you are culpable in handing the election to Donald Trump. Now, to come to this ridiculous conclusion, Bill Maher must not know about how Jill Stein actually took less votes away from Hillary Clinton than Gary Johnson took from Donald Trump, and furthermore, more Democrats voted for Donald Trump than they actually voted for Jill Stein. But let's not acknowledge that inconvenient fact because Bill Maher right now wants to attack the people who had legitimate grievances with Hillary Clinton and refused to come out to support her in favor of someone like Jill Stein. So this is his message to you in a nutshell. Go fuck yourselves with a locally grown organic cucumber. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Bill. I'll make it a pineapple if it means not voting for the corrupt, lying, warmongering corporate puppet that your boss has donated to. Because it's not just that she was the lesser of two evils, it's that the two options that we were presented with were so evil that we really had no legitimate choice. I mean, you could make the case that Hillary Clinton is actually more right-wing than Donald Trump when it comes to foreign policy. She voted for the, for the Iraq war, so... You, you can't seriously make this argument with a straight face unless you're just being disingenuous. Uh, and Bill Maher is, in fact, being disingenuous. But before we get into his core argument, I want to take the time to show you how Bill Maher's perception of reality is skewed because he lives in a bubble. He's rich, so... To him, in his view, someone who is a right-wing extremist, someone who is a union buster like John Kasich, is worthy of our praise. You're one of the good ones. So let's really get them on your side and talk about some of the things that you've done and are for. First of all, you supported medical marijuana, and you also expanded uh, 
Medicaid, Medicaid, which a lot of Republican governors did not do. You care a lot about the poor. It's part of your faith, is it not? I could see a challenge in the Republican Party for 2020. Would you be up for that? So what you just saw right there was a so-called liberal trying to encourage his impressionable viewers to support a guy that wants to cut Social Security, cut taxes for the wealthy, cut food stamps, limit collective bargaining, restrict access to safe and legal abortions, restrict voting rights, and basically do all the same things that Donald Trump is currently trying to do. But because he seems nicer, well, according to Bill Maher, he's not as big as a threat as Donald Trump is. But in fact, Bill Maher thinks that John Kasich is such a stand-up guy that he actually wants him to challenge Donald Trump and run for president in 2020. So that way we can replace Donald Trump with someone who will implement the same policies as Donald Trump, but will just be a little bit more nicer to us while doing so. Now, Bill Maher also purports to care about climate change, but John Kasich is someone who fracked the hell out of his state. However, I'm assuming that Bill Maher doesn't have a problem with that since the candidate he pushed for so vocally sold fracking to the world as Secretary of State. But Bill Maher wasn't done praising neoliberal elites just yet because he took the time to credit Obama for something that Bernie Sanders did. What Obamacare did more than anything was changed America's view of health care, that it's a right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Bill, that totally makes sense. The right-wing Heritage Foundation endorsed health care policy that was championed by the insurance companies made health care a right. So it's no longer the case that since Obamacare passed that people die or go bankrupt. Oh, wait, that's still happening. People are still dying and going bankrupt, even if they have insurance because deductibles are still too high. So it was the case that Obamacare was a step in the right direction, and it did, in fact, expand coverage, but there are still people left out. So to assume that Obamacare made healthcare a right is factually incorrect. It's just demonstrably false. And to assert that shows that Bill Maher is uneducated about this issue. But I mean, if you believe something like this, well... It only makes sense if your perception of reality is, in fact, skewed, which I'm inclined to believe since you think people that didn't vote for Hillary Clinton are bad people. But speaking of Hillary, let's go ahead and dive into his argument and find out why Bill Maher is so adamant about you falling in line and voting for a candidate that doesn't represent you, that wouldn't have represented you, um, that his employers donated to. Let's find out why Bill Maher wants you to support Hillary Clinton. But in the case of Donald Trump, I will say this about 100 days. It does give us enough evidence to ask those liberals who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary because she was the lesser of two evils, quite a bit lesser, wouldn't you say now? And no, this isn't about reliving the last election or about my great love for Hillary, which never was. It's about winning the next election. And that begins with learning the difference between an imperfect friend and a deadly enemy. Jill Stein said of her (laughs) electoral rivals, Hillary and Trump, To me, one is death by gunshot wound, and the other is death by strangulation. Well, I'm sure with Trump in charge and a racist attorney general, there'll be a lot more of both. My dear friend Cornel West 
said during the campaign, I think Trump will be a neo-fascist catastrophe and Clinton will be a neoliberal disaster. I don't even know what a neoliberal disaster even means, but whatever it is, isn't it better than a fascist one? Have you people lost your fucking minds? Now, I can't possibly list all of the lies, fuck-ups, reversals, conflicts of interest, and embarrassments Trump has committed in 100 days. I'd have to stop halfway through to shave. <laughs> but honestly, under Hillary, would we have Attorney General Foghorn Leghorn? <laughs> or Montgomery Burns in charge of the EPA? Or Rick Perry guarding the nukes? <laughs> Would she have a cabinet made up almost entirely of rich, straight, white men? You know, Hillary, <laughs> she knows quite a few black people. Trump knows two. I'm sorry, three. Oh, and we also might have a secretary of education who was smarter than a fifth grader. Before the election, Edward Snowden tweeted, 2016, a choice between Donald Trump and Goldman Sachs. Yeah, so what happened? The anti-Wall Street crowd that was too pure to vote for Hillary ended up putting Goldman Sachs people as Trump's top political strategist, the head of his economic council, and our treasury secretary. The trifecta. The only people he hasn't hired from Goldman Sachs are Goldman and Sachs. <laughs> If Hillary was president now, would we be turning the clock back on the one issue for which there is no more time, climate change? Would we be having to wonder if our president's love of dictators foreshadows some kind of coup here? Would anyone have to wonder if she was Putin's bitch? And instead of trying to kick millions off health care to pay for a tax cut for herself, she'd be trying to raise her own taxes to get more people covered on so many issues. She wouldn't be complaining. It's complicated. Who knew? She knew. She loves complicated. She's a reader. Do you really think if just as evil Hillary had been elected, conservatives would now be in control of the Supreme Court as they will for decades? Just wait until the five to four decisions start rolling in, gutting unions, making it harder for minorities to vote, siding with polluters, overturning abortion rights. Then maybe you'll join me in saying to the liberal purists, go fuck yourselves with a locally grown organic cucumber. I wonder how many times he practiced saying that in the mirror. <laughs> so his argument is that, you know, after having Donald Trump for 100 days, quote, those liberals who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary because she was the lesser of two evils, quite a bit lesser, wouldn't you say now? 
Um, absolutely not. Because with the exception of social issues, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are comparable. I mean, look at the foreign policy positions that they both hold. Donald Trump bombed Syria, and then Hillary Clinton insinuated that that wasn't enough. He should have an ongoing bombing campaign of Syria, of Syrian airfields, and she also implied that he probably shouldn't have warned Russia to move their soldiers from the area that they would be bombing, which Donald Trump did, because even though he's dumb, he's not stupid enough to want to start World War III, I hope. So, by warning the Russians that he would be bombing a Syrian airfield, he avoided a potential catastrophe. But Hillary Clinton is not in favor of that. She also voted for the Iraq War, pushed for intervention in Libya, and Donald Trump ran as a non-interventionist. Now, I didn't believe him, but if you are a liberal and you are vehemently against war, then you can honestly make the case that Hillary Clinton is not the lesser of two evils based on that argument. So, to say that she's quite a bit lesser... No, that's not true. They're still very comparable. And yes, of course, when it comes to the Supreme Court and social issues, she's better than Donald Trump. She's preferable. But that's not everything. What Donald Trump is doing is he's undoing social progress we've made with executive orders. That can be reversed when we elect a progressive president. However, what can't be reversed is more wars that Hillary Clinton obviously wanted to start if she would have been elected. So I, I just don't buy this argument that Hillary Clinton is much less evil than Donald Trump. That's not the case. And most Americans agree with me and not you, Bill. Hence why they didn't come out to vote for her and why she lost. Now, he also brings up Jill Stein's comments saying that the difference between Clinton and Trump is akin to the differences between death by gunshot wound and death by strangulation and proceeds to show footage of police brutality against African Americans. But by showing that footage, he's proving our point because Obama was president while these things happened. And I'm not blaming Obama for that, but the problem is that Hillary Clinton pushed for policies in the 1990s that facilitated even more mistreatment of and state-sanctioned violence towards African Americans. Mass incarceration exploded because of policies that Bill Clinton signed into law that were pushed for by Hillary Clinton. I mean, she called them super predators. How could you let that go, Bill, and then honestly tell me with a straight face that she would have stopped all of this? Not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. So if Bill thinks that Hillary Clinton would have fought for demilitarization of the police or criminal justice reform, she wouldn't because her record suggests otherwise. And then in response to Cornell West, he says, I don't even know what a neoliberal disaster means, but whatever it is, isn't it better than a fascist one? Well, sure, if you want to, you know, opt for the more intellectually lazy argument and not do any research whatsoever, because if Bill Maher was paying attention, if he was in the grassroots, he would see how, as we've seen, it tends to breed fascism. So, I mean, you don't counter fascism with neoliberalism because neoliberalism is something that economically strangles populations. And when a population is given crumbs, when they're deprived of economic prosperity, they become radicalized and become more inclined to listen to the ramblings of a demagogue like Donald Trump or Marine Le Pen. So, rather than spending the time to take weeks to come up with this segment where you just talk down to peasants, why don't you actually educate yourself? Read a book about neoliberalism and how it devastates democracy. In fact, I'm going to pull out a book and recommend one to Bill Maher. It's called Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution by Wendy Brown. It's one of the best books you will find 
on the effect that neoliberalism has on democracy. And I'm actually going to get old school here and read a passage because I think it's really important. So she states, my argument is not merely that markets and money are corrupting or degrading democracy, that political institutions and outcomes are increasingly dominated by finance and corporate capital, or that democracy is being replaced by plutocracy, ruled by and for the rich. Rather, neoliberal reason, ubiquitous today in statecraft and the workplace, is jurisprudence, education, culture, and a vast range of quotidian activity is converting the distinctly political character, meaning, and operation of democracy's constituent elements into economic ones. So everything's being economized. And she states, liberal democratic institutions, practices, and habits may not survive this conversion. Radical democratic dreams may not either. So neoliberalism is something that literally threatens democracy. And again, we've seen how neoliberalism breeds fascism and radicalizes populations. But Bill Maher is just going to shrug and brush it off. I don't know what that means. Well, Maybe if you uh, educate yourself and if you didn't live in your wealthy elitist bubble, then you would be forced to. But I mean, you make enough money where you, you never have to worry about the impact of neoliberalism because you benefit from it. It doesn't hurt you like it hurts normal Americans, Bill. So you didn't come off as someone who is reasonable when you made that statement. You came off as someone who is unwilling to educate themselves about the foundations of neoliberalism and how it erodes our democratic institutions. Now, the one argument that I think is probably the most persuasive that I'm willing to actually admit is the Supreme Court argument. The problem is that the makeup of the Supreme Court hasn't officially changed yet, and he's blaming us for that before it even happened. There's still a conservative majority, five to four, and that's the same way it was when Scalia died. There's a lot of variables that you have to take into consideration. Why not blame Ruth Bader Ginsburg for not retiring? Because there are many calls for her to retire, and I think those calls were legitimate, even though I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she's getting older, she's sick, she's not the healthiest, and so if we get stuck with a Republican and, you know, something happens to her, God forbid, then the conservative majority grows. So why would you blame us for that? Why blame the voters? I mean, of, of all people to blame, why not blame our elected officials? But you blame the voters for something that they really have no control over. But here's one thing I know that won't help anyone. If you truly are liberal, like you claim, Bill, then talking down to us peasants, telling us to shut up and accept the crumbs that have been fed to us by the Democratic Party as you go home to your mansion every night and look down on us from your pedestal, isn't going to persuade us. And if Donald Trump really is as big of a threat as you claim he is, let me ask you this question, Bill, because I think this is really important. What did you do to defeat Donald Trump? Did you phone bank for Hillary Clinton? Did you canvass for Hillary Clinton? How many doors did you knock on for Hillary Clinton? This is a serious question that I'm proposing to Bill Maher because people might think, Mike, that's ridiculous. Well, why is it ridiculous? Because you're rich. You can't actually do grassroots activism to support a candidate that you believe in. If Donald Trump really is the existential threat that you claim he is, why didn't you do more to help elect Hillary Clinton? See, because us Bernie Sanders supporters, we put in the time. We knocked on doors for Bernie Sanders. We made phone calls for Bernie Sanders. We face banked for Bernie Sanders. We did everything we could to get out the word. I posted hundreds of videos on this channel about Bernie Sanders trying to spread awareness about his campaign, and then it was stripped away from us. So we, we put in our time to defeat Donald Trump, but you decided to just be lazy and look down upon us. You didn't want to put in time like we put in time because you're you're an elite. We're peasants, so it's us who should be putting in the effort at the grassroots level, not you.
So you claim that Donald Trump is a threat, but again, I want to know how many flyers did you leave about Hillary Clinton on people's doors? What did you do for her, Bill, other than talk down to us? So, I mean, if you really want to defeat Donald Trump, Bill, like you claim, don't rich explain to me about how we should fall in line and support the candidate that colluded with the DNC to rig the primary in favor of the candidate that we worked our asses off for. Millions of people gave Bernie their hard-earned cash and put in time and energy. But after the primary was over, when it was rigged against Bernie Sanders, you just looked down on us. You told us to ignore the legitimate problems we had with Hillary Clinton or how she cheated her way through the primaries. That didn't work in 2016, and it won't work in 2020, because that, my friend, is what I would like to call a feudal strategy. If it didn't work, you know, talking down to people didn't work before, then certainly that's not going to work again and if anything it's going to piss more people off so this is my ultimate response to bill and um this is what i got to say to you bill and i'll let you hear it from someone who i used to respect go fuck yourselves with a locally grown organic cucumber senator chris murphy was on the primary concerns podcast and he was talking about the american Healthcare act and for those of you that don't know that is the republicans plan to repeal and replace the affordable care act so he was asked whether or not if trump care goes through would democrats consider something like a medicare for all system now his answer was really odd to me so he tap danced around the answer he said probably and then maybe and then he said you know there's some caveats so he just wouldn't give a direct answer so let's listen and basically i'm going to tell you what his answer is uh in a nutshell so would, would you support doing something expedited something along the lines of a version of single payer if republicans rip apart the affordable care act and if democrats uh are serious about saving ACA, why not more explicitly say, if you do this, we're going to come back and we're going to do to you what you're doing to us right now? I think there's a lot of hypotheticals built into that question. I, I guess I'm not there yet as to what our ultimate legislative response would be should they pass this bill and should we win back control of the House and the Senate. I think there's a lot of steps that are involved between here and there. So my focus right now is trying to defeat this proposal uh, at all costs. You know, I do think you need to just think about the whiplash to the American healthcare system that mm -hmm. comes with radical changes to it, uh, depending on Republicans or Democratic leadership, it would be um, it, it would be beneficial if at some point we could get some basic bipartisan consensus around the non-Medicare portion of our healthcare system, as we have historically had up until this moment uh, around the way in which we run healthcare for 65 uh, and above. Um, but clearly, I mean, if Democrats get control of the House and the Senate and Republicans rip away healthcare from 24 million people, we are going to do whatever it takes to restore store health care to the people who had it taken away, if they actually allow insurance companies to discriminate against uh, sick people, um, then they're going to lose majorities of the House and the Senate in 2018. And we will have uh, the numbers potentially necessary in order to restore those benefits. So um, I, I haven't really thought out in my head um, exactly what we would offer and, and how we would do it, but uh, they're going to lose control of the Senate and the House if they go forward with anything that resembles what happened in the House and we'll have the opportunity to fix it. This approach, this sort of olive branch approach, ends up, you know, six, seven years later, everyone's uh, kind of throwing it back in your face. What's left other than to do a Democratic, you know, liberal only 
you know, no nod to consensus healthcare bill in the future. Well, and I think you can further to that point, you can argue that had we done Medicare for all um, in 2009, it might have been much more popular and much harder to attack than the bill that we passed, which was an attempt to try to fix the underlying problems in the healthcare system while maintaining the existing platform, this mix of public and private care, clearly extending Medicare to everyone um, is um, much more easy to explain and much easier to comprehend. You know, as we sort of think about how we would get to that moment, um, I think it's it's probably most easy for the public to stomach if they are given the choice, right? If they are given the choice to sign up for a Medicare program or stay on their private plan, I think you would see if they were given that choice, a pretty massive gravitation over mm-hmm. to a Medicare for all type vehicle because A, it would likely provide better uh, benefits and at lower cost because of that very minuscule administrative cost built into the Medicare plan. So um, yeah, had we done that at the outset, you could argue that it would have been more popular. It would have been harder for Republicans to attack. And clearly that's going to be on the table uh, if they move forward with this repeal. The, this, you're talking about essentially a very robust version of a public option. Yeah, but yeah I, 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 think you, I think you have to think we it's easy today to say that we should be in a Medicare for all single payer system, but you do have to think about how you would transition to that system. And when I think about that, it looks very much like a a very aggressive, robust public option. So basically his answer was no. Now, the reason why he wouldn't just directly say no, and the reason why he did this little tap dance around the issue was because he knows that Americans are paying attention. We're calling out corporate Democrats that refuse to back a Medicare for all system. And he certainly saw how his colleagues, you know, Dianne Feinstein, Claire McCaskill, other corporate Democrats uh, were called out by their constituents when they refused to back Medicare for all. So he knows that if he wants to actually continue to maintain the favor that he's cultivated with his constituents, he's going to have to muddy the waters a little bit. And really, when you take a moment to think about his argument, it's just indefensible. So he states, if we did Medicare for all back in 2009, it would have been more popular and harder to attack. So when, you know, uh, asked whether or not you would opt for this again, if Democrats can ever take back government, he said, "Mm, maybe if Trump care passes, but I'd probably be more in favor of a robust public option. So if you admit that there are benefits with Medicare for all, if you know that it's easier to sell to the American people, and the best part is that a majority of us are in support of it, including a plurality of Republicans, then why wouldn't you back Medicare for all? And the worst part to me is that he says that it's only going to be on the table. So it's not even a definite thing. It's only going to be on the table if two conditions are met, if Trump care passes and if Democrats are able to take back control of the House and the Senate and the White House. But the problem is that that's not how you win. Because if you don't put forward a real alternative to Trump care, you cannot take back the House and the Senate. Because if you don't give voters a real option, an alternative, you're not going to excite anyone to get out and vote for you. We saw this strategy 
tank Hillary Clinton's campaign recently. So why would you double down on a losing strategy? You can't just say, well, the Republicans are evil, they're bad, they do bad things, elect us, because we're not that way. You actually have to retort with something that would better our lives, but they're not doing that here. And imagine the impact that this would have on their electoral prospects. If Democrats came out swinging right now, even if they don't have control of anything, and they said, if you elect us, we will fight for Medicare for all and make it our one, our number one priority, and we will not stop fighting uh, until it's passed. Can you imagine the amount of support that they would get for a system like that? I mean, it's overwhelmingly popular. 75% of Democrats support that. A majority of independents support it. You would have people come out in droves to support you because, again, we learned that voters, they don't vote against someone. They vote for someone, someone with policy, someone with a vision for the future. And since Democrats still don't have a vision as to what their response would be to Trump care, it's incredibly frustrating to me because he's he's saying Medicare for all is only on the table if Trump passes. Well, why does there have to be any caveats? Why can't you just say that you're going to fight for Medicare for all? We know it's because the Democratic Party's health insurance donors don't want them to. So that unwillingness to commit, it's not going to guarantee Democratic victories in 2018 and 2020, even if the GOP can push Trump care through Congress. Because if you don't put forward a solid vision, you won't excite the base. And when you don't excite the base, they stay home and Republicans win. So I, I just, I don't understand how a sitting senator doesn't understand this. This is politics 101. You've got to counter with a policy. I mean, if you don't do that, then you're not going to excite anyone. So we already know what to do. We know that his answer is basically no by by tap dancing around it and saying, you know, maybe, definitely maybe, it's, it might be on the table. You're telling us no. That's what you're telling us because we know how Democrats operate. If you're not even willing to take a stand now when you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by endorsing Medicare for all, we know your answer is no. So uh, we are going to call you just like we called Claire McCaskill and Diane Feinstein because I know that you think you're going to be able to evade criticism by doing this tap dance, but it's not going to work, buddy. So his phone number is 202-224-4041. Hello, you have reached the office of Senator Chris Murphy. We are unable to come to the phone, but please leave a message and we will call you back. Hi, my name is Mike Figueredo with a message for Senator Murphy. Uh, I recently heard his interview on the Primary Concerns podcast, and he was asked whether or not Medicare would be on the table if uh, Republicans are able to roll back the protections that we currently have with the Affordable Care Act. And basically, he did this tap dance, and he said it would really only be on the table if Trump Care passes and if they could retake uh, you know, the House, the Senate, the White House. And basically, what I heard was that he would not be in favor of a Medicare for all system. And I know that he's trying to probably muddy the waters because he doesn't want any criticism like his colleagues have. But if Chris Murphy does not support a Medicare for all system, we will primary him at the earliest opportunity because currently a majority of the country supports a Medicare for all system. According to a current YouGov poll, 75% of Democrats support it, 58% of independents support it, and a plurality of Republicans support it. So they have nothing to lose. 
Chris Murphy has everything to gain by supporting a Medicare for All system, but I'm wondering if his reluctance to support it really is more so about the $600,000 that he took from the health industry. And if that's the case, then we, we can't have him in office. We have to primary him and get him out of office because we need someone who's going to represent us and not the donors. So I would like you to forward this message to Chris Murphy. If he does not support Medicare for All, he will lose the support of his base because if you want to defeat Republicans in 2018 and 2020, you have to offer voters a real alternative. You need a vision that you could present to the American people. And telling us maybe we'll pass Medicare for All isn't going to do it. So tell him to get on board or get out of office. Thank you very much. So please call. I would encourage you to leave him a, a message, be polite. You know, we don't have to be rude. We can get our point across, you know, um, by just letting them know what's at stake. Either you support Medicare for all, something that a majority of Americans support, or you leave office because you're elected to represent Americans. And if you're not going to do that, then you have to leave. It's that simple. If you're one of the individuals that feels embarrassed and thinks that our country is the laughingstock of the world since we have an orange reality TV star buffoon as our president, well, <laughs> the situation in America is about to get a lot worse because this is not even the final form of American politics because elites are joining politics and not just any elites celebrities who have nothing meaningful to say whatsoever with respect to policy. So we already know that Kanye West, Mark Cuban, Oprah, the Facebook CEO, and the Disney CEO are all potentially going to be entering politics soon, but you can now add even more contenders to that list all of which are Republicans. Now, we have some celebrities and singers and reality TV show stars that will be entering politics, not necessarily to run for president, although there's more and we'll get to that. So, uh, the first of which is reality TV show star Antonio Sabato Jr. So, according to the LA Times, Sabato is a longtime actor best known for roles in General Hospital and Melrose Place and as a model for Calvin Klein underwear. In recent years, he has appeared in several reality television shows including starring in My Antonio, a VH1 contest for which women competed for his affection, and Dancing with the Stars. The 45-year-old was a vocal supporter of President Trump during the 2016 presidential campaign and spoke on his behalf at that year's Republican National Convention. In an interview at the time, he said that then-President Obama was a Muslim, which is not true. Sabato said afterward that he was blacklisted by Hollywood producers because of his visible support for Donald Trump. They blacklisted you, Antonio, because of your support for Trump, not because you are a shitty reality TV show star who was popular in the 90s. It's because of your support for Trump, right? You're the victim. <laughs> so um, in terms of his qualifications, uh, I, I don't know what specifically is on his resume. Maybe being in a VH1 equivalent of The Bachelor is, you know, part of the reason why he thinks he's qualified. Um, but he's a joke. He's a joke. You're no more qualified than the Duck Dynasty guy, than Scott Baio. Why? Why? <laughs> My question is why? Are you so bored? Can you not get any other reality TV show gigs that you have to dabble in politics now when you understand nothing? So, you know, he's not the only one. There are other people. So we've got 
the batshit crazy singer turned reality TV show star Ted Nugent, who might run for the U.S. Senate to represent the state of Michigan. And yes, I'm talking about that Ted Nugent, the one that said he'd be either dead or in jail if Obama was reelected. Now, he also defended apartheid in South Africa, so stay classy. But I mean, besides Ted Nugent, and I think we should call him Ted Nugget, because I think that's more emblematic of the size of his brain. Uh, there's other singers that are deciding to run for Congress. We also have Kid Rock. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> this, we need help. <laughs> if there's any extraterrestrials that exist in the universe that have been surveying us and watching us, now is the time to intervene and save us from ourselves because this is a disaster. So we also have action movie star Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is considering a run for the presidency. So according to Mediaite, when asked if he is still considering a White House run, he said, I think that it's a real possibility. He's already got some ideas about how he'd govern and how he wouldn't. On how President Donald Trump is doing so far, Johnson said, mm, with any job you come into, you've got to prove yourself. He added, personally, I feel that if I were president, poise would be important. Leadership would be important. Taking responsibility for everybody. If I didn't agree with someone on something, I wouldn't shut them out. I would actually include them. When asked what he would like, he told the magazine, I'd like to see a better leadership. I'd like to see a greater leadership. When there's a disagreement and you have a large group of people that you're in a disagreement with, for example, the media, I feel like it informs me that I could be better. We all have issues and we all got to work our shit out. He added, the responsibility as president, I would take responsibility for everyone, especially when you disagree with me. If there's a large number of people disagreeing, there might be something I'm not seeing. So let me see it. Let me understand it. Okay, so full disclosure, you know, I know nothing about the rock personally i know he's an action movie star i've seen some of his films and, and you know i think he he does he does a good job acting you know i like his movies to an extent but um just by reading that little transcript there of the interview he had with gq magazine it leads me to believe that he is exponentially more intelligent and reasonable than donald trump however with that being said think about why he's deciding to run i believe in leadership rock Dwayne, whatever you know you want me to call you that's a platitude that means nothing that's an amorphous term of course you know we're all in favor of leadership but i mean politically what would you do to better the lives of ordinary americans why are you encouraged to run what persuaded you to run if your campaign wasn't catalyzed by an issue that you care about and if you're only running because you're rich and you can here's an idea Stay the fuck out of politics because we don't need you. We don't need celebrities to save us from Donald Trump. And I know that there's many on the left that thinks that if we put up our own celebrity like Oprah, well, that could be someone who could defeat Donald Trump. But you don't defeat Donald Trump with another celebrity. You defeat Donald Trump by running a true progressive who's in favor of Medicare for all who is in favor of breaking up the big banks and re-implementing Glass-Steagall, who is not in favor of these foreign policy interventions that never end. So if you don't run with someone like that, and you choose to run with someone who has no principles, who only decided to run because they thought, hey, what the hell, I'm rich, I'm bored, so let's do it, you will not win. So that's not a great way to defeat Donald Trump. And I will give them this argument, though, to the people who are pushing for celebrities because they're, you know, any anything's better than Trump is the argument. If you think that they have a chance, they do. I agree with you there. And this is because the media 
would be fascinated with all of these celebrities running. I mean, we saw what happened when Donald Trump ran. The media gave him $2 billion in free advertising when there was basically a blackout against Bernie Sanders. This isn't me just saying that. This is based on research, on quantitative analyses that were done that showed that the media gave him significant less coverage than, than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So, it frustrates me to think about how legitimate candidates like Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard, Nina Turner, Bernie Sanders would get overshadowed by celebrities like The Rock, like Oprah, like the Facebook CEO. You designed a website. How does that qualify you to be the president? I designed the website humanistreport.com. Does that mean that I could be president? No, because how does that translate into foreign policy experience? What education background do you have that makes you someone who can understand the complex, wicked problems that plagues our country? Climate change. I mean, how, how can you be so arrogant to think that because you have money, you could represent the American people? If anything, the fact that you're rich makes you less apt to represent us because you're in a bubble. So we need someone who is from the grassroots, who talks to normal people who isn't in a Hollywood bubble who can represent our values. And that person isn't The Rock. It's not Oprah Winfrey. It's not the Disney CEO. It's someone who is a progressive, who has the record like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. So when I saw this story, I was more embarrassed than anything. I mean, I'm not necessarily mad at The Rock. Well, I guess I am a little bit. You know, I'm aggravated that he is so arrogant and all these other celebrities are so arrogant that they think that wealth translates into um, qualifications because it doesn't. Uh, but I mean, Donald Trump, he set a new standard. He, he showed that you can be a billionaire and no matter how stupid you are, you can steamroll your opponents in a Republican primary and win the presidency. I mean... This is the new normal in American politics, and what we're seeing now is just plutocracy taking place in front of our very eyes. We see elites, wealthy elites, celebrities, you know, the oligarchs competing to run our government, to govern us, and we don't have a say anymore because the media will be complicit with their elections, and it's just, <laughs> we, have to, we have to take a stand. We have to stand up and say we're better than this. For those of you that don't know, the transcript for the first DNC fraud lawsuit hearing is available online, and I'll link to that down below. But as I kind of make my way through it, because it's very long, the hearing was five hours, I continue to find more and more things that are just downright disturbing. So by now, there's a lot of revelations that we found out once this hearing uh, came to light. So we know that the DNC's lawyers couldn't really define impartiality. They also said that if the DNC wanted to, they could go in a smoke-filled back room with cigars and unilaterally choose who the nominee would be. So these are all things that are problematic. However, when I read through more of the transcripts, there's another tidbit in here that I found to be really problematic. So on page 44 of the transcripts, they argue that Bernie Sanders supporters shouldn't be suing the DNC because they can't prove that they were injured, stating with respect to the individuals who they are, they haven't actually alleged specific injury. They've just said that they donated money, and although we are not relying on this for our standing argument, this kind of goes to plausibility. There are statements in the public by some of these class representatives that show there was no reliance and no injury. Some of them even gave money in order to participate in this lawsuit. 
So they're really making two claims here. One, they're saying that there's no injury. They're playing dumb here, saying that the DNC didn't actually rig the primaries against Bernie Sanders. And second of all, they're alleging that we're opportunistic. They're saying that some Bernie Sanders supporters didn't even support Bernie, but they donated to him just because they wanted to be part of the lawsuit. This is the argument that an attorney is making. And not just any attorney, the DNC's attorney. So let me ask this attorney this. If it were the case that Bernie Sanders supporters were opportunistic and they just wanted to get involved with this lawsuit, well, did they have a crystal ball to be able to predict the lawsuit? Because we didn't really know about the lawsuit until late June. So how could we have possibly anticipated a lawsuit? I mean, it's not like literally every single one of us came together to file the lawsuit. But I mean, how would we have been able to predict that? And furthermore, think of how illogical that is. You're literally saying that someone donated to Bernie Sanders just so that way they can sue the DNC and get their money back so isn't that a gamble you're donating with the hopes that you can get your money back and maybe make a little bit more money uh you know if the damages portion goes through but that that just makes no sense you are saying that we're opportunistic when the dnc was the opportunistic one they were the ones that went above and beyond and colluded with hillary clinton before any of her opponents entered the race in order to tip the scales in her favor and create a primary process that disproportionately disadvantaged all of her opponents mostly bernie sanders who was her biggest challenger obviously so to say that we're opportunistic it's it's so <laughs> it's so aggravating to me or at least some were opportunistic so i'm surprised to hear a lawyer making this claim but they also uh more on them playing dumb they state counsel said that the plaintiffs are seeking an injunction to prevent the dnc from engaging in future conduct and future elections of this type that's exactly right again very vague allegations of what the conduct that issue is you know no real answer to how a federal court can tell a party how it should conduct its affairs going forward so yeah they're playing dumb and they're saying well you know how, how did we like they can't even prove how we rigged the primary but thankfully wikileaks emails and you know the gucci for emails will be admissible in court and i mean we have debbie wasserman schultz on the media who talked about the chair throwing incident in nevada where she just basically made it up along with other democratic operatives saying that bernie sanders supporters got violent and you know democratic officials dnc officials were scared for their lives uh, when we know that that wasn't true. Snopes debunked that. Nobody was throwing chairs. Somebody picked up a chair and then put it back down and they hugged it out. So that was a lie. So we have Debbie Wasserman Schultz on the record, on the media, lying about Bernie Sanders supporters. And we know it was a lie because we had the video footage. And thankfully, uh, Jared Beck, who is the attorney representing Bernie Sanders supporters, actually brought up the chair-throwing incident. So, you know, the, let's hope this goes through. I'm definitely crossing my fingers, but... What was stated here is exactly right, that we, we are doing this to make sure that the DNC can't rig future elections. I think that the Republican and the Democratic Party must conduct business fairly, especially if it's in your charter and you say so. I mean, if you're not going to be fair, then that's fine. Good luck getting anybody to vote for you. But they know that nobody would vote for them if they knew the process was rigged. So they convinced us it was fair and that they were impartial and then they rigged it against us. And now they're playing dumb and saying that Bernie Sanders supporters were opportunistic and basically that this lawsuit is frivolous. They just, they're suing the DNC and they donated to Bernie Sanders just so they can be part of this class action lawsuit. That's nonsense, and it's really a shameful argument that the DNC is making.
Bernie Sanders recently spoke out against President Obama's decision to accept $400,000 from Wall Street for a speech. Now, during an interview with CBS, they asked whether or not Bernie Sanders himself would turn down a speech, um, and they didn't believe him, and they then proceeded to laugh in his face. President Obama is going to speak at an event uh, here in New York, a Wall Street investment bank, for $400,000 fee. You were critical of Hillary Clinton for taking money like that. What do you say about President Obama making an even larger fee? Look, uh, President Obama is a friend of mine. I think he, uh, as president, uh, represented our country with integrity and intelligence. Uh, but I think at a time when people are so frustrated with the power of Wall Street and the big money interests, I think it is unfortunate uh, that President Obama is, is doing this. Uh, you know, right now you have um, President Trump's key economic advisor, as you know, is Gary Cohn, uh, former president of Goldman Sachs, a firm that paid $5 billion in federal fines because of illegal behavior. Wall Street has incredible power, and I would have hoped that the president uh, would not have uh, given a speech like this. Are you saying if you were offered $400,000 to give a speech, you would turn it down? <laughs> if I was... <laughs> If Wall Street offered me that, yeah, I, I don't want Wall Street's money. No. Even though it's no, but, but I don't. But I must tell you, I really don't have to worry about that too much. I, I haven't gotten too many invitations from oh, Wall Street. Oh, I bet there's some people out there yes. who would be really Never say never, Senator. Yes. I can't help but think that they're only laughing at Bernie Sanders because they're projecting. They're thinking, how could you turn down a $400,000 speaking gig? I mean, I certainly would take it. So what you're telling us is that you're susceptible to corruption. And as someone who is a journalist, you're telling us that if someone paid you $400,000 to do something to cover a story a certain way that you wouldn't turn it down you wouldn't put your integrity first I mean if, if so that's that's incredibly problematic so I mean again this is completely speculative and I don't want to make any accusations but it just seems as though they're projecting because they're saying they would be as or certainly implying that they would be as susceptible to corruption like this uh, as President Obama is. And look, we all know what this is about. It's not just whether or not, oh, should he take money now that he's not president? What is he going to do to make a living? President Obama will be fine, I promise you. And, you know, they were not convinced that Bernie Sanders wouldn't take the money. And I think Bernie Sanders did a good job just kind of brushing it off and, you know, making light of the situation. But Bernie Sanders already faced this test. When he decided to run for president, he chose to turn down a Super PAC, and he could have taken a lot of money, but he didn't. He turned down that money because he wanted to make a move that would keep his integrity intact because he knows that if he takes money from large multinational corporations, then even if his intentions were altruistic, how would we be able to trust him to represent our values and not give favors to the people that helped him get elected? So Bernie Sanders was already tested on this and he passed the test. He chose not to have a super back and take corporate money. So I find this troubling because as someone in the media, you're supposed to hold elected officials accountable, not make fun of them or laugh at them because they're not as corrupt as their peers. That's unacceptable. So it's really disappointing to see them defend Obama's decision to take this money and laugh at Bernie Sanders when he said that, you know, there's something wrong with this, which there is. So, you know, very frustrating here. I wish that we had a media that did its job, that actually held our elected officials accountable. Because if we had a medium that did that, man, could you imagine if they called out each politician's corruption, if they vote against the bill that they took money from? I mean, for example, the Republicans, if they talked about how health insurance companies 
were funding the campaigns of Republicans and then they voted for a bill that would allow insurance companies to raise the cost of healthcare. Could you imagine if they talked about it? The outrage that you see now would be exponentially greater. So I just wish the media would do its job, but we don't have a media that is competent. Uh, they don't have legitimacy. They don't have our trust. Hence why their approval ratings are low. And also, hence why independent media outlets are on the rise. So um, <laughs> this made me so... It didn't make me angry so much as it disappointed me to see this because, man, this is the state of our media in 2017. If you say you're not corrupt, if you lambast corruption, you are laughed at. Shameful. If you're a new college student that is forced to take out a student loan to attend school, well, you might be getting screwed over more so than those of us already up to our necks in debt because the cost of loans will be going up again. So according to Bloomberg News, the U.S. government is raising prices for new student debt, adding hundreds of dollars to the cost of the typical federal college loan. Beginning in July, interest rates on new government loans are set to rise by 0.69 percentage point. And this is according to Wednesday figures from the Department of the Treasury. For undergraduates, that could amount to nearly a 20% increase in interest charges. New undergraduate loans from the Department of Education are due to carry an interest rate of 4.45%, up from 3.76% for the academic year ending in June. Rates on some graduate loans are set to rise from 5.31% to 6%, while rates on loans to parents and guardians are due to experience a jump from 6.31% to 7%. For example, the cost of a $10,000 loan would increase by about $400, according to an online calculator maintained by Bankrate.com. That may not seem like a lot of money, but the uptick comes on top of a mountain of student debt. After years of tuition hikes by colleges and relative decreases in U.S. grants, more students and their family members are borrowing from the government to finance higher education. As it is, some 44 million Americans collectively owe one Point four trillion on their student loans, an average of roughly thirty-two thousand per debtor. About one in six American adults has a student loan, and this right here is why we need tuition-free public colleges and universities. Because at this point, this is unsustainable. You have a trillion dollars of debt. And think about how that plagues the aggregate economy, because if you have millennials who are getting out of college and they're bogged down by these huge interest rates, they can never pay off their student loans. So they're going to have these student loans for most of their lives. And what's going to happen? They're not going to be able to buy houses. They're not going to be able to buy cars. And that's less money that will go into the economy. And that's problematic for all of us. We should all care about this, even if we don't have student loan debt. I do. But even if you don't, this is an issue that should concern you. Because if you take money away from students, even if it's just $400 more, which is a lot, then... That means that the purchasing power of ordinary Americans decreases. And when that happens, people are less inclined to spend money. And if you're not spending money, then the economy stagnates. But when normal Americans spend money, when they go to stores, they buy Xboxes, they buy cars, you know, they buy iPods. I, I'm dating myself now by saying iPods. But <laughs> when, when ordinary Americans spend money, that helps the economy. So if you increase the purchasing power of the middle and lower class and the working class, then that will 
create jobs. It will stimulate the economy because those businesses will then make more money. They'll hire people. They'll expand. And this is economics 101, so I shouldn't have to explain it. But, I mean, this is something that affects all of us. So if you don't have student loan debt, you should be right alongside all of us fighting because if more and more students come out of college with this crippling level of debt, then we're all going to suffer. And this is a bubble that is unsustainable. It's bound to pop because you just, you can't have this level of debt. It's unsustainable. It's going to inhibit economic growth. And my generation, we've just been screwed over like no other because I mean, the government, it doesn't subsidize education like it used to. And so what happens is when the government doesn't subsidize education as much, what happens? Well, then tuition hikes go up. Now there are a ton of other factors. So of course that's an oversimplification, but what matters is that Tuition hikes are going up. You can debate me on the cause of that, but they're going up and it's hurting normal Americans. And in this day and age, in an economic climate where you almost have to get a college education if you want to find a good paying job, we're basically backed into a corner and we're forced to take on this debt. This is one of many areas that the American public, they just continue to get screwed. And as someone with so much student debt. It, it's honestly scary. You know, when I really sit back and think about it, uh, I kind of freak out because, because you know, um, it, it's really, you know, it's scary. You, you, you just don't know if you can ever pay off that much debt. And with how high interest rates are, man, you, you, we're just screwed. Now, of course, there's the conservative libertarian argument that, you know, well, why'd you take out the loans? So the problem with this argument is that even if you're poor enough to qualify for Pell Grants and that subsidizes the entire cost of tuition, you still may not have enough money for books. You still may not have enough money to survive, for gas to commute to school, for public transport. You don't have enough money to live. So, I mean, that loan makes it so that way you can survive and it also helps to subsidize the living expenses that we have, you know, it helps to feed us. So for me, uh, loans were crucial for me to survive, uh, you know, because I wasn't making enough money with my job, even though I was working more than 35 hours per week and, you know, over 40 hours if I was lucky. And it's just not enough. And the people who say that, they're just detached from the struggle that ordinary Americans have to go through. So this is this is not acceptable. This is really disappointing news. And I feel so heartbroken, you know, when I see all of these optimistic graduates, they leave college or they uh, or they leave high school and they're getting ready to enter college and they see what's ahead of them. I feel so bad for them. You know, I have nieces and nephews right now that are graduating high school and they're going into college and it's heartbreaking. You know, we're we're crushing the next generation. I was one of many progressives that spoke out against the Dakota Access Pipeline because it infringed on the territorial sovereignty of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, but also it threatened the water for millions of residents in the surrounding areas, including Standing Rock Sioux. So this was something that should not go through. It shouldn't have went through. However, it's now on a fast track to go through. And this is what I had to say about the Dakota Access Pipeline in December. I think that it's just common sense at this point that there's no such thing as a safe pipeline. And when it comes to Keystone or the Dakota Access Pipeline, it's not a matter of if they spill oil. It's a matter of when they inevitably spill oil. Now, I wasn't the only one to make this claim. 
there were many progressives that warned the world about the dangers of this pipeline and unfortunately were already starting to be proven right. So the Hill explains, South Dakota officials are looking into a small leak along the route of the Dakota Access Pipeline that spilled 84 gallons of oil. A pump connecting the pipeline to a crude oil storage tank in rural South Dakota leaked the oil sometime in April, Dakota Media Group reported Wednesday. The oil was captured by absorbent material at the site and put back into the pipeline, officials said. The state won't find the pipeline's operator because the spill was reported and properly cleaned up. A spokesperson for developer Energy Transfer Partners told Dakota Media Group that the malfunction occurred during the process of filling the pipeline with oil. That linefill process should be completed by June 1st, when the 1,170-mile pipeline is due to enter into service. The spill, which was limited to Energy Transfer Partners' workspace at the storage site, is a minuscule amount of oil compared to other spills. It's also the first spill associated with the Dakota Access in South Dakota, according to the report. Now look, we're all reasonable people here. It's not like this is a major spill, objectively speaking. But... The problem is that this pipeline will be transporting nearly 5,000 gallons of crude oil every single day. And if it's already having problems as they're just putting the oil in it, imagine what's going to happen when it actually starts transporting the oil. And again, you know, credit to the company in this instance because they did clean up the oil spill and they reported it. However, don't give them too much credit yet because this company has proven to be incredibly incompetent because this wasn't the only oil spill that we found out about this week. So the Federal Regulatory Agency Commission has curtailed work on a natural gas pipeline in Ohio after the owner, Energy Transfer Partners, reported 18 leaks and spilled more than 2 million gallons of drilling materials. The Ohio EPA has fined Energy Transfer Partners about $400,000 and asked the FERC for support. Greg Butler, the Ohio EPA director, said the company's response had been dismissive, exceptionally disappointing, and unlike any other response he has seen from a company in his 27 years at the agency. So we all need to understand what's happening here. The only reason why Energy Transfer Partners acted so diligently and did report the spill and clean it up immediately was because they know there's a lot of scrutiny and media attention now being paid to the pipeline. But when it comes to this other pipeline, which is the Rover pipeline, not many people are talking about that one. So they feel as though, you know what, we can actually, um, we can, we can be more negligent here and be incompetent like we actually are and not be as diligent here. So what we need to do now is make sure that the Rover pipeline also gets a lot of scrutiny. And look, I don't know how many times you have to say this, but it's not a matter of if, but when these pipelines burst. I said it in December, I've been saying it, and I'm not the only one to say it. I'm not copywriting that phrase. We're all saying it because it's just common sense. It's an indisputable claim. These pipelines spill all the time, and with a company as corrupt like Energy Transfer Partners, whose officials donated to the campaign of Donald Trump, they're doing everything to cover their ass. Now, I had some people reach out to me on Twitter saying, Mike, why are you even talking about this? Because the pipeline, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline, it's not even in service yet. Right, but don't you find it troubling that it's already spilling oil before it's in service? Doesn't that spell disaster for the future? Isn't this just, you know, a small look at what's to come? How many oil spills, how 
I mean, to what extent do we have to destroy the environment and poison the drinking water of American citizens before we realize that we have to move to renewable energy? We need a green revolution. So energy transfer partners, they've proven time and again that they're incompetent and they continuously spill oil. However, since they can buy politicians and buy officials uh, in the states where they want to put up these pipelines, they get away scot-free. And it's incredibly disheartening to people that have been out there fighting for months, freezing their asses off, who faced brutality from militarized police, who were bitten and attacked by the dogs of armed mercenaries. I mean, this is just, this is an injustice. And the fact that it's spilling oil, I mean, we need to do everything we can to publicly shame this company because we told them that this would happen. They assured us that this was the safest way to transfer oil when we already have a million other pipelines you could use. So why would you need another one? Oh, that's right. It's because of the profit motive involved. Well, no, we're done. It's time that we start putting the planet over profits because, you know, for so long, since neoliberalism and trickle-down economics took over American society, we've been putting profits above people and planet, and that's no longer ac acceptable. It's a position that is no longer acceptable. So this company must be shamed. So for the first time in what feels like a long time, we've actually got some good news coming out of American politics. Now, when it comes to the state of Vermont, they are the first state that voted to legalize recreational marijuana. So any other time that recreational pot has been legalized, well, it was subjected to a referendum. But in this instance, marijuana is being legalized legislatively. So this is a new thing and it's a big win for proponents of cannabis legalization. So Salon explains, Vermont became the first state to pass legislation legalizing the recreational use of marijuana through its legislature today. Colorado and eight other states have similarly moved to decriminalize the drug, but always through state referenda or other maneuvers. This marks the first true legislative victory for marijuana advocates in the U.S. The bill, which passed through the Vermont House of Representatives with a 76 to 66 vote, would legalize small amounts of cannabis possession starting in 2018 and establish a tax and regulated market for the illicit drug. Having already passed the state's Senate, the bill is now headed for the desk of Republican Governor Phil Scott, a marijuana skeptic. A recent poll found that 57% of Vermonters asked would approve of legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman said that the fact that the state legislature was able to push the bill through shows how in touch the governing body is with Vermont's people. I think it reflects that Vermont elected officials are more in touch with our constituents than a lot of elected officials in other states, he told the Free Press. Zuckerman added, I think the public is ahead of us, but elected officials tend to be cautious when it comes to change. The Vermont Vermont legislature had previously legalized medical marijuana in 2004 with a further expansion in 2007. In 2013, the state made minor possession a misdemeanor offense. So this is great news. However, now we're all crossing our fingers hoping that the Republican governor signs this bill into law. And if he doesn't, he's just subverting democracy because if a majority of your voters want you to legalize it, then do it. And 
I, I really will never understand why politicians on both sides of the aisle refuse to get behind this because this is a win-win-win. You have a majority of the country on board with medical uh, with medical and recreational marijuana. You have a majority of conservative Republicans who are younger on board with recreational marijuana. So you have nothing to lose by embracing something that's inevitably going to be the law of the land. I don't know how long or when it's going to pass, but we know that marijuana will be legal, recreationally so, in all 50 states one day. It's just a matter of time. And, you know, we saw that with Colorado and Washington passing it, Two years later, we had Oregon and Alaska pass it in Washington, D.C., and then we had Maine and California two years later. So, I mean, it just more and more states continue to legalize recreational marijuana. More and more states continue to legalize medical marijuana. So if he doesn't sign it, then this would be incredibly angering. And I hope that every single person in Vermont takes the time to call their governor and let him know that he has to pass it. He, you can't ignore what voters want. You can't ignore what people in Vermont want and what their representatives and senators were voted to do, and that is represent their interests. So this is really great news coming out of Vermont. Uh, you know, they are a great state. Let's hope that it passes uh, or gets signed. It passed, but let's hope it gets signed. And if not, then I'd, I'd say this to all of you uh, cannabis advocates out there. Put it on the ballot. It's a guaranteed victory. Now, I don't know, you know, um, what your state's laws are regarding ballots. I know that every state is different on, you know, referendums and whatnot and the criteria for putting something up to a vote. But I think that this is an issue that if, if it's not legalized, if the governor refuses to sign it, then it will be legal someday. But it's still frustrating that you make this progress and you, you want to see the results. But the good news is that he's just a skeptic. You know, a skeptic is better than someone who is like Jeff Sessions, who think people are bad if they uh, if they smoke marijuana it's just complete nonsense and that you know that reefer madness era is over you know we have the internet we have access to information we saw the medical studies that continuously prove that there are medical benefits of marijuana and it's not harmful it's less harmful than alcohol so if you're going to keep that legal and if you're going to support the legalization of alcohol then you should support marijuana otherwise you're just a hypocrite so again uh let's celebrate this victory because this is a win for progressives this is a win for most people in the country and the momentum for marijuana will continue make no mistake about it well that's the end of this episode i want to thank you all so much for tuning in um you know hopefully you guys feel better knowing that we're ending the podcast on a more positive note knowing that we have more positive news stories and that americans are actually fighting back but before we go um I want to take a moment to really thank each and every single individual that decided to sign up to support the show on Patreon and PayPal because right now, without your support, I don't know how this show would survive, and I really mean that. So this week, I want to thank Arnulf, Snekvik, Avery Becker, Brian, Cameron Chase, Lawrence Miguel, Chris Liatsis, Christina Marie Carmana, Claudette Cohen, Emily Laughlin, Eugene None of Your Business, Fabrice Bongartz, Francisco Meza, Franca Horvat, Gary, Gills Aaron Gitua, Gio Gallo, Ilari Suomalainen, G.E. Deaglis, James A. Hancock, James Robertson, John Ogden, John Sordia, or Sordilla, John L. Doggins, Josie Ammon, June Macy, Caitlin Dupice, Christofferson Kakavikos, Kyle J. Braz, Lana Henderson, Leslie Wilson, Lord Henry, Malgorzata Kirch, 
Marie H. Martin Hueser, Matthew Zeller, Natasha Shaver, Nisha Patel, Rende N. Durham, Reese, Rita Kelly, Robin Hood, Scott Mearing, Sean Javier, Seamus Mullen, Sean Evans, Stephen Nordby, and Wanda Gresham. So thank you to each and every single one of you guys. I truly appreciate your support. Um, and really, if you're supporting other independent media outlets on Patreon or PayPal, thank you. You know, on behalf of them, I want to thank you because what you're doing is just, it's so kind. It's so generous. And, um, you know, it speaks to the need for independent media. So thank you all so much. So that's it. Um, I'll see you guys next week.